Welcome to Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Emma Ajman, Personal Finance Writer at the Investors Chronicle, and joining me today are Leonora Walters and Taha Lokhandweller, Personal Finance Editor and Deputy Personal Finance Editor at the Investors Chronicle. Also with us is Alex Brandreff, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Wealth Manager Brown Shipley. After years of money printing and bond buying by central banks, a more traditional monetary environment is starting to return, one where central banks do less to prop up the system. But less stimulus from central banks could mean bond prices fall, eroding their capital value. Alex, why exactly are bonds facing such a difficult time at the moment um, and a different environment? So um, the environment has has definitely changed this year. So interest rates globally are starting to look like they're moving higher. They already have in the US, but UK is talking about increasing interest rates as well. And even in uh, Euro and Japan, they're looking at changing their interest rate policy as well. So globally, you have the main four central banks who are all looking at a different direction. So we've got used to a world of cheap money and that's coming to an end Um, and that's being driven by stronger global growth so we're in a period of very sustained global growth almost the strongest we've seen for about 10 years or so so the environment and global growth backdrop does suggest that we should be in a higher interest rate environment and quantitative easing in other regions should be stopping. And what exactly is the relationship between interest rate rises um, and bond prices? So they've got an inverse relationship. So as uh, interest rates go up, bond prices fall. And that's because um, if you think how a bond's structured, so when a bond's launched, uh, they're based on the current interest rate environment. So if the interest rate environment changed, the bond price has to change to reflect that. So if interest rates go up, um, a bond coupon will be uh, less attractive than it was when it was launched. And it works the other way as well. So if bond interest rates go down, then a bond price will be less attractive. So there's an inverse relationship there. And do you think then we are likely to see more interest rate rises in the US and the UK? So the US, you're looking at currently about three interest rate rises this year. There's already been one. Um, In the UK, it's quite topical at the moment, actually, because uh, Mark Carney came out a couple of weeks ago and talked down the market. So everyone was expecting that we'd be seeing uh, interest rates rising in the UK in May. That now looks less likely. And the GDP data that came out last week as well was weaker than people expected. So the, the growth outlook doesn't look great for the UK at the moment. As well as that, you've clearly got the Brexit uncertainty, which is around us. So I do think, though, that being said, uh, growth in the UK is quite strong and global growth is strong. So um, you will see interest rates in the UK increase probably once this year. Any ideas when you think that's likely to be? Uh, I looked at the probability this morning, actually, and it's likely to be August. There's a high probability there. If not, it'll be November. Um, it'll be August, November, because that's when you get an inflation report out of the Bank of England. So there's only going to be those two months, I think. Um, I personally would probably be leaning towards November because that will be after you see the Brexit um, outcome in October. So I think it makes sense to wait for a couple of months to see what the Brexit view is going to be and then decide which interest rate trajectory we want to go through. And you also mentioned inflation in the report that the Bank of England is going to get which might influence when they decide whether or not to raise rates or not. How exactly are bond prices impacted by inflation? So there's an inverse relationship between inflation and bond prices. So as inflation is higher, bond prices go lower. So it's the uh, par value at the end which matters. So if in five years' time, let's say, you've got a bond which is going to mature and pay you back £1,000. Now, if inflation is higher, the real value of that money erodes over time. If inflation is lower, then it keeps more of its value. So that's why bond prices are impacted by inflation. Okay. 
Um, and in the UK, inflation has dropped recently. I mean, it went up to as high as 3.1% and that's come down um, most recently. Do you think that's a trend that we're likely to see continuing? I think so. Um, inflation is actually quite a good thing you can make predictions on um, and that's because it's so impacted by sterling. So you saw inflation pick up because of this sterling fall after uh, the Brexit referendum whereas sterling's clearly been recovering over the last year or so relative to its major peers um, and that will be less inflationary in the UK. On the flip side, you've had the oil price, which has recovered significantly this year, which will be inflationary. Uh, nevertheless, we're still expecting inflation to fall despite the oil price rise. Okay, and that's in the UK. Um, what about more globally? So, yeah, the UK is in a bit of a strange space because of sterling. So that's been meant that inflation globally has been lower and the UK has been higher than everywhere else. And it feels like it's starting to change. So you had a Fed meeting this week. Um, where inflation's actually hit their target. So you're starting to see inflation picking up in other global nations. Uh, that, and you're seeing commodity prices and oil, um, it means that globally you're probably going to start to see inflation creeping higher. That's probably another reason why interest rates need to start changing just to keep a lid on inflation. And what about how glo- global bond markets have been performing um, since the start of the year? Have they been affected by the expected path we're supposed to see on interest rates or inflation? Absolutely. So the bond market's been, uh, particularly in January, was uh, selling off dramatically. The US uh, 10-year bond, which everyone looks at in the in the markets, moved through 3%, which is the first time for four and a half years or so. So clearly there's a big move that's happened this year. Um, so yeah, bond markets have been in retreat. And it's effectively because people are expecting interest rates to be higher in the future because of the strong global growth backdrop. And we've also seen quite a lot of volatility in the equity markets. Does that have an impact on on bond markets? And are we going to see extra volatility in bond markets because of that change in equity markets? I think it's actually the other way around. I think the bond market moves are are making the equity market uh, jitter. So if the bond market was selling off in January and it was the equity market which was impacted in in February and March. So yeah, I think it's really the bond market which is driving equity market. And and that's because... um, there's been a lot of investors over the last few years looking for income so they've been going for sustainable dividends and as interest rates start to increase the attractiveness of dividends becomes less attractive than it was so that's why equity markets have been slightly more volatile as well. And given these risks um, you know the issues that we've been talking about do you think it's actually worth investors still having some exposure to fixed income? Absolutely so I mean um, despite what's going on in the backdrop we will always have some exposure to fixed income because we build diversified portfolios uh, and particularly if you're a low risk investor you don't want to have the volatility of investing in the equity market so bonds do provide that stability and the other point as well like the fact that interest rates going higher pushes bond prices lower um, the same effect happens in the equity market as well so as equities go lower bond prices tend to to go up to because they work in an opposite direction uh, so they can be stabilizers in portfolios so we will always have some exposure just to be stabilizers and, and diversify portfolios and you run a number of um, model portfolios. So how much exposure do you have in those model portfolios in fixed income? So in the low-risk portfolio, you're looking at maybe 40 or 50%. Um, in a high-risk portfolio, basically none, because they just want to have equity exposure. Balanced portfolio would probably have somewhere between 25% or so. 
And which of the areas do you think are most attractive in fixed income right now? So we will always have some exposure to government bonds for the reasons that are mentioned, but the other areas um, are attractive are probably shorter dated because if interest rates are more um, looking like they're increasing, create more volatility in bond prices, you want to be more shorter maturity bonds. So that's an area that we've been targeting. And shorter dated bonds, probably strategic bond funds tend to be shorter dated, maybe a bit high yield if you're positive on the global growth backdrop as well and emerging market debt. Okay. Um, yeah, so quite a few areas that you think are interesting. Mm. Um, how do you get exposure in, into those areas? What Do you have any particular funds you like? Yeah, so for government bonds, we we typically go through a tracker, so an LNG tracker, both in index linked and conventionals. Um, for strategic bonds, there's there's a lot out there that we can buy, and we do. So uh, the Janice Henderson Strategic Bond Fund is um, an excellent fund that we've had for a long time. Performance has been very strong consistently. We also like the Schroeder Strategic Credit Fund, so that fund has very short duration so short maturity bonds uh, and is invested in a bit of investment grade and a bit in high yield as well so that's a good fund that won't be too volatile because of the uh, interest rate backdrop and conversely are there any areas that you're avoiding in the fixed income environment yeah so if we're preferring shorter data bonds it kind of by definition means that we don't want to be in longer data bonds so there's some big long dated corporate bond funds in the in the various i sectors that we're, we're not touching at the moment Okay, thank you very much, Alex. Some very useful insights into the bond market. One of the areas tipped for success last year was European equities, but their performance failed to live up to expectations. Taha, you've been looking at this. First of all, why were expectations so high for European equities last year and why did they fail to live up to them? So it was quite an interesting thing. When you were coming into 2017, um, there was uh, a lot of positivity on global growth and kind of undervalued areas were tipped to do really well. So Europe was one of them, Japan was another. And these, you know, these areas were you expected markets to rise quite quickly. Um, and they did in the first half. So Europe rose 13% in the first half of the year. Um, but then what happened was is that these expectations weren't actually matched with economic reality. So a lot of people were, invest- were expecting inflation and GDP growth to go quite well in the Eurozone, and it never really happened. It was never bad, but it was never as good as people thought. So in the second half of the year, markets only rose 3%. What you've seen this year is a bit of that come off as well. So what's happening right now? What the what is the economic picture looking like right now? So it's it's a bit it's a bit muddled. The first quarter GDP growth was zero point four percent. That's um, after zero point six percent in the last quarter of last year. So this isn't actually bad, but it's not overly positive. And I think what people were kind of looking for was something a bit stronger, uh, something that would kind of show demonstrations of inflation coming back into the eurozone, very much to what Alex was saying um, before, and also you know something that would show that. The monetary policy in the eurozone might change and the, the ecb might look at kind of raising interest rates and a bit of normalization as, as it's normally called also that what this data is showing is that the core inflation in the eurozone is actually falling um and this is a, a measure that's used quite a lot by economists the ecb and investors so it's it's a, bit, it's a bit mixed at the moment and do we think that inflation is likely to pick up you, you said it's falling do we think there's going to be a change to that uh i think i think the the fall was um kind of put down to a bit of a statistical quirk uh, about the timing of Easter, which always happens um, each year, depending on when Easter falls, it always seems to affect the figures some way or another. Um, But I think what everyone seems to be expecting is it's going to be a steady rise, it is going to rise, it's certainly not going to fall, but it's not going to be as kind of vigorous as people were hoping. Okay, so it's not going to shoot out the lights necessarily? No, absolutely not. And do you think these conditions, you know, you're talking about the mixed picture, um, how much is that affecting companies? How is it, much is it feeding into company earnings? 
So in, in terms of company earnings, this is where things become a bit more modelled. The company earnings from quarter one, for the ones that have reported so far, they've actually generally been quite positive. And we actually saw the same thing in the first quarter last year where corporate earnings expectations were actually were beating quite heavily and that's what drove the, the first half return that I mentioned earlier. Uh, but co- corporate earnings in this first quarter are beating expectations. But it's a bit different in terms of it seems very sector specific. So the energy sector is doing quite well, but everything else is doing as expected or, you know, not as expected. Um, And what that's meant is that markets have generally actually, well, they're probably slightly positive as by now, but they're, you know, nowhere near significant enough to, to warrant being anything other than flat. And there's a a few reasons for this is um, obviously we had the volatility in the first part of the year and a few trade concerns and a lot of these concerns have come off. So it's, it's kind of helped earnings a little bit as well. Are there any further risks that could kind of derail that performance? Are we uh, things that we should be watching out for? Yeah, so this kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. This this kind of dip in growth that we've seen in the first quarter, some people just think it's a pothole uh, and you know the rest of the year will be fine. Again, not shooting the lights out, but steady growth, which will allow um, normalisation of policy. Um, obviously, there's no guarantees for that, so we don't, we don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, definitely one to watch. But, you know, if it if it's slow and steady, then that should be good enough. But if not, then there's a serious problem. If inflation, core inflation falls any further, there'll be some serious concerns about kind of a disinflation or even deflationary environment uh, and the removal of those risks is what actually drove the returns in the first place. But if that comes back, then people will be very scared. Okay. So if on balance, you know, you think that you can handle those risks and you do want to get exposure to European equities, how can you do this? Uh, So there's there's a lot of ways. Um, Kind of like the strategic bond sense, um, but there's over 200 funds and investment trusts you can use to access European equities. So there's a lot of a lot of options out there. And a lot of these a lot of these kind of fund managers you read you read their commentary they're quite positive. They're talking about valuations that are low and this being a good time to come in. Um, But a personal favourite for me is the Marlborough European Multicap Fund. And the reason for this is because if you're concerned about the risks that you see in Europe, uh, what you want is, well, you know, as always, what you always want is a diversified and very broad range of options of where you might find return. So the multi-cap fund is, as its name suggests, a multi-cap fund. So it has small caps, medium caps, large caps, although it's definitely weighted towards the, the smaller end. Uh, but it's got 134 stocks. It is geographically diverse. And it's got a manager, David Walton, who's been buying small European smaller companies for over 25 years. And he's got a performance record that shows that he, he knows how to manage the, the hard times and the good times. So. Um, Alex, what do you think about investing in Europe right now? Are you positive on the region? We're actually neutral at the moment, so we were we were positive throughout last year, um, and it was, it was mainly to, around the political events. So you had a couple of big elections last year, the French and Dutch election, and clearly both were positive from a from a stock market perspective. So um, that's when we went more bullish. Uh, but I think that's why the market got very excited in the first half of the year, and, and then just was basically traded sideways. So looking forward, we just feel that being neutral is probably a better place to be as opposed to being overweight at the moment. And what allocation do you have to Europe and your model centre if it's um, neutral? It ten- depends on the model. So if you're looking at a typical balance, probably about 5% or so will be in, a, uh, in European equities at the moment. What would you say then, you know, Taha was mentioning all the potential risks of that could face Europe. What would you say are the main pitfalls that investors need to be aware of? I think it's definitely politics. So you've still got a hung parliament in Italy, which is going to be dominating the headlines. And Italy's one of the biggest nations in Europe. So that clearly needs to be resolved. Their banking system is also a mess, if I'm being honest. So they, they need to sort out the banking system in Italy to for the economy to grow. 
Uh, and then on top of that, you've still got politics with a potential trade war. So I appreciate the US are over in China at the moment discussing things, but if there's going to be a trade war. I think Europe will be more impacted because uh, they're a big exporting nation and clearly they're exporting to both the US and China. So that's something that we're looking at very closely at the moment. And you said that you do still have some exposure to Europe. So how do you get exposure? Which funds do you hold? So it depends on the mandate. So for a more cautious or income-orientated client, we'd buy the Standard Life European Income Fund. Uh, we've been investing that fund for, for a long time, um, and the performance has been has been excellent. Um, as you go up the risk scale um, for kind of a balanced portfolio, we um, have the J.O. Hambro Continental European Fund. Again, uh, like Standard Life, we've been investing them for a long time, and Paul's done a great job of delivering strong performance, uh, but does so in a very controlled manner. And then for more aggressive portfolios, we've got the BlackRock European Dynamic Fund, um, something a bit similar to the Multicap Fund, um, in that it's takes um, it's a bit more focused and can um, invest in different areas of the market cap as well. Moving away from Europe, which areas of the globe do you think are most attractive at the moment? So we've had a, a bias for emerging markets in Asia for probably about 18 months or so now, and that's still the case. Um, we still feel valuations are attractive there. Uh, we're seeing that China is becoming a more important part of global growth. It's driving about a third of overall global growth at the moment, so it's clearly a very key part. So, and we think that can continue. We don't see, any, we don't have any concerns at the moment about the Chinese economy. I think there's some really interesting businesses that are based over there as well. So we want to get exposed there. And then, sorry, just one other point as well is that clearly commodity prices um, are very linked to uh, what's going on with the global growth environment, and emerging market nations do tend to be commodity producing. So there's another positive dynamic there as well. Okay, but some investors sort of worry about debt levels in China. Is that not something that can you know concerns you? It is. I think that's something that's been on our radar for a while. It's just very hard to get the timing right about when people are going to wake up to that and 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 start to impact the stock market. Um, so it's something that's there. And, you know, we're discretionary managers, so if we do get concerned about that, we'd look to act in the best interest of client portfolios. Okay. And which funds do you use to get exposure to emerging markets? So for emerging markets, we've got two different types of funds that we buy, more value-orientated and a growth-orientated fund. So in terms of value, uh, the Lazard Emerging Markets Fund's done very well over the long term. And growth, uh, we'd go to the Bailey Gifford Emerging Market Growth Fund that had a absolutely fantastic year last year in terms of performance and that was because it's invested in a bit more tech and a bit more obviously the growth areas which did very well last year so i think it's important to realize that there's two different types of companies you can buy and try and balance the risks there as well great thank you very much taha and alex after 40 years in asset management nigel thomas is stepping down as the manager of axa framlington uk select opportunities fund at the end of this year ahead of his retirement in march 2019 Leonora, how has this fund performed under Mr. Thomas's tenure? Well, um, over the long term, very well indeed. Um, Nigel Thomas has run Axe of Farmington UK Select Opportunities since launch in 2002. Since then, it's made 380%, and that's against 237% for the FTSE Allshare Index. Now, in the short term, um, things haven't been so brilliant because over the last two calendar years, 2016 and 2017, Axe of Farmington UK Select Opportunities has underperformed the Investment Association 
UK oil company sector average and the FTSE oil share index. Um, and these two years have skewed its cumulative numbers. So if you look at its um, cumulative one and three year performance, that's not looking so good either. Um, I think this is basically a glitch in a successful career, though. One of the reasons why the fund underperformed in 2016 was because he doesn't have much exposure to miners, which is an area he doesn't typically go for. Um, and he was quite focused on, let's say, UK facing um, shares, which didn't do very well after the vote for Brexit and large caps rallied following that. So that kind of explains the um, underperformance. But I think overall, um, you know, it's been a successful career and, uh, you know, a good run for that fund under Nigel Thomas. And so he's going to be replacing Nigel Thomas when he leaves then. And what sort of experience do they have? Right. The, the manager who's going to step into Nigel's shoes effectively is Chris St. John. Now, Chris St. John is already co-manager of AXA Farmington UK Select Opportunities. And um, he's had that position, I believe, since 2013. Um, now, Chris also runs a number of other funds with which he's been quite successful. He runs AXA Famlington UK Midcap Fund. He's had it since its launch in 2011. Um, and um, it's it's done very well. It's beaten the FTSE 250 index over one, three and five years. And it's beaten the IAUK all company sector average over those periods as well. If you look at three and five years, the slightly longer term periods, um, you know, it's one of the top performers in its sector. Chris also runs the um, AXA World Funds Framlington UK Fund. Now that's an offshore fund, but it's actually very similar to AXA Framlington UK Select Opportunities. So let's say he's probably got some good experience and, you know, something quite similar and he's done very well with his mid caps. Okay, well, that sounds positive. Is he going to be making any changes to the way the fund is run? Officially, no. Um, AXA Farmington says that when he takes over the fund, he will continue its investment philosophy and process. Obviously, he's not going to change the style in any way, but I think it would be inconceivable to believe, you know, there's going to be nothing different because he's a different manager, you know, with different experience. That said, you know, he's worked with Nigel Thomas. He's already a co-manager on the fund I think some of what we see in that fund already is partly his input. And they do also have quite a collegiate atmosphere in the UK equity team. There's about eight people. It's headed by George Luckcraft. Um, and I think they do collaborate. So I don't think there's going to be massive changes. But, you know, he is a different guy um, and he will have probably, you know, there will be some subtle changes. And do you think then that investors need to kind of worry about this change or do you think that actually the fund is likely to continue to produce good long-term returns? Well, it's no one knows exactly what's going to happen. I think whenever there's a manager change on a fund, um, I think you always need to be vigilant. You know, um, I think number one to remember is this is not happening until the turn of the year. He, he will officially become lead manager in January. So there's, you know, there's nothing going to happen today or tomorrow. So there's no immediate changes there. When he does take over, I think it's important to see, you know, will there be, you know, are there any portfolio changes? How has performance? But I don't think it's a reason to, you know, run out and panic sell. In fact, I don't think whenever there's a manager, you don't immediately run out and panic sell. Um, and he, he's, you know, he's, he is a good and experienced manager. Now, 
analysts have slightly mixed views on it. Um, I um, looked at a couple of these. Morningstar, um, you know, they point out, yes, he's been successful, but they want to go and see him. They want to have a look a bit further what he's going to do. And they have actually put the fund under review. Um Fund Calibre, another agency, they're actually much more confident. And say, you know, they've met Chris a number of times in the past few, four years. They regard him very well, and they will certainly maintain their buy rating on the fund for the rest of this year and early into next year as the transition happens. And they emphasise the fact that you know he's been working on the fund since 2013. He'll keep the investment style, so we don't expect big changes. Alex, how concerning do you think it is when the fund changes manager? Um, it depends on the circumstances and the situation. In, in this instance, we invest in a mid-cap fund, so I think Chris is an excellent fund manager. Um, so I'd be confident trusting him to do that. Uh, but if I hadn't met the fund manager before, then I'd want to speak to them and understand what they do and how they do it. Um, so, it, yeah, it very much depends on the situation. We have had some situations where a manager's left and there's not been anyone there to, to replace them. Um, so... When George and Georgina left Mighton, that was the case. Um, so we were a bit un- nervous at the time. So we would always wait and speak to the manager, but it does depend on the situation. OK, thank you, Alex and Leonora, some helpful points. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more about the changes at AXA France in UK Select Opportunities, the Outlook for Europe and Fixed Income in this week's magazine and the website. Thank you for listening and have a great long weekend. <laughs>